0: frank ling and i'm charles lee and you're listening to the grok science show coming up on today's program mr david Quammen. join us he'll talk about next human pandemic so stay tuned for all of this plus the grokatron 5000 and our world famous question a week coming right up here on the grok's science show Science show. Well, the threats from zoonotic diseases continue to percolate in the natural environment. The chance of a pandemic outbreak is particularly acute in today's hyperconnected world. Well, what are the mechanisms that instigate such pandemics, and what can be done to prevent them? Joining us today to discuss this issue is Mr. David Quammen. Mr. Quammen is an award-winning science, nature, and travel writer who has penned over 15 books, including The Song of the Dodo and The Reluctant Mr. Darwin. His latest release, Spillover, Animal Infections and the Next Human Pandemic, explores this topic for a general audience. And Mr. Quammen, we're very pleased to have you today on the Grok Science Show. Well, good to be with you, Charles. Certainly, our pleasure. Certainly, a uh, really a very fascinating book. What really are the threats and uh, likelihood of such uh, pandemics occurring?
1: Well. Each of these emerges from wildlife, and some of them do turn into pandemics at their worst. Some of them are merely outbreaks localized in villages in Africa and elsewhere. Some of them manage to be national epidemics. Um, the ones that have turned into pandemics within recent history are, there's, of course, the 1918-1919 the influenza, which killed about 50 million people around the world. Then there was another uh, fairly bad um, pandemic influenza in 1968, killed about a million people. And in the meantime, of course, the AIDS pandemic was slowly beginning to emerge. And and now we know that 30 million people have died of AIDS since the 1980s, and another 33 million people are presently infected. So each of these newly emerged um, viruses or other or the bugs, in most cases they are viruses, uh, is watched very carefully by the disease experts because they wonder which one could be the next big one, which one might have the capacity to turn into a pandemic that could kill hundreds of thousands, millions, or even tens of millions of people. And the science of of zoonotic diseases is focused on, on figuring out where these things come from why they spill over into humans when they do, which ones are the most severe and uh, egregious threats to humans, and, and how we might uh, prevent or at least control those spillovers when they do happen.
0: And how do they go about monitoring these various animal infections? Well, there are scientists out there in the field uh,
1: And I describe some of their work in the book. I've spent some time with them over the past five or six years working on the book. There are scientists out there who are trying to solve the first mystery of each new emerging disease, which is where does it come from, what's the reservoir host, the species in which it lives inconspicuously, asymptomatically, and from which it under certain circumstances, spills into humans. So the first step of the scientists, the first step in terms of understanding and and controlling these threats is to solve the question of of where the pathogens live. What's the reservoir host? And then after that, it's a matter of understanding why it has spilled over in a given place uh, at a given time, what sorts of human interaction with that particular species of wildlife has has led to the the bug getting into humans so there are scientists all over the world working for organizations like the CDC the World Health Organization private groups like eco health Alliance based in New York City that uh, that are out there uh, in the forests in the uh, in some cases in the monkey temples of, of Asia in the other places where humans have contact with wildlife, the wet markets of southern China, trying to um, detect these new viruses at an early age, trying to detect these new viruses at an early stage, identify them, categorize them, uh, and then um, make preparations to, to respond and to, and to limit the amount of damage these things do when they do spill over.
0: So it's far-reaching a global effort. I mean, are there particular hot zones that are more on the radar than others?
1: Well, yes. The the diverse ecosystems, the, the tropical forests and the other very richly diverse ecosystems, the places that have the most different species of animals, plants, and other organisms, are the places that also harbor the most viruses, the places from which new pathogens emerge. So uh, I describe in the book some, some work in the Congo, um, I describe going to the, the caves of southern China with a fellow looking for the, the reservoir host of SARS, I describe some work in the forests of Borneo, in the um, tropical forests of eastern Australia. The richly diverse ecosystems in one place or another are, uh, are the places where this, uh, this, this vigilance is, is most important.
0: And is it more likely that such crossovers infecting non-human primates, or is it just as likely coming from other organisms?
1: Well, that's a good question, and that's one they're, answer- they're asking themselves, too. Which species of wildlife are the most likely reservoir hosts for the pathogens that, that have been getting into humans and are likely to get into humans? There is a pattern of quite a number of these diseases emerging from bats, um, the giant fruit bats of Southeast Asia uh, belonging to the genus Teropus and other species of bats seem to be reservoir hosts in quite a number of cases. Marburg virus has its reservoir host in bats. Ebola, still not, that mystery hasn't been quite solved, but bats are suspected as the reservoir hosts of Ebola. SARS emerges from bats. Bats. Uh, Rabies has certainly uh, reservoirs in bats. Australian bat, lyssavirus. There's a virus in Malaysia and Bangladesh known as Nipah virus that has its reservoir in bats. Another known as Hendra virus, Australia, also bats. So bats are implicated um, in a number of these cases and uh, in non-human primates, monkeys and even apes, chimpanzees and gorillas. Uh, are the reservoir hosts for a number of others that have gotten into humans. The scientists, of course, are asking themselves, why bats? And that's that's a, an interesting scientific question that I explore in the book.
0: Is it one with an answer? Well, one of the possible answers is simply
1: that it's uh, it seems to be that an extraordinary portion of these things emerge from bats simply because bats are a very, very diverse order of mammals. In fact, one in every four species of mammal on the planet is a bat. So it might be just a statistical artifact. But the scientists suspect that it's more than that. Bats are also very um, social creatures. They live in huge aggregations where you, you sometimes find hundreds of thousands or even millions of bats living together, um, roosting together in a cave or or, or Roosting at close proximity to one another in trees, the fact that they're densely sociable and that they live very long lives—bats may live 18 or 20 years—those two factors together may mean that um, bats and colonies of bats represent really uh, hospitable habitat for pathogens, viruses, and and other pathogens, and so that. Um, they're emerging from bats because uh, bats uh, provide habitat for many more viruses than than the average kinds of animals.
0: Is it also the history of uh, human-bat interactions hasn't been quite so intricate, so there hasn't been as much time to acclimatize for both human and bats? So that one, well, that's one... possible, too, yeah. yeah.
1: Obviously, we don't have any domesticated species of bats. Um, humans have been interfering with bats for a long time, but now uh, that there are 7 billion of us humans on the planet, we're, we're intruding into the, uh, into the richly diverse ecosystems more, uh, more insistently and more abundantly than ever before. So we're coming into contact with all of these creatures, including bats, more often and, and as I say, more intrusively than ever before.
0: Is there a common mode of transmission or for the spillover from the animal reservoirs to to humans? Well, there are a couple of different ways in which spillover can
1: occur. Probably the most obvious uh, and the the most blunt is when humans kill and eat uh, species of wildlife. For instance, uh, the AIDS pandemic began uh, with one chimp uh, spilling over the precursor virus of the pandemic strain of HIV into one human in the southeastern corner of Cameroon in Central Africa as early as 1908, give or take a margin of error. That's very different from what people think they know about the origins of the AIDS pandemic, but that's based on Very interesting and persuasive science. It's been published in in some very good journals within just the last five or six years. Southeastern corner of Cameroon, 1908, give or take a margin of error. How did that happen? Well, the details are unknowable, but the speculation is that a human killed and butchered a chimpanzee and got blood-to-blood contact. This is referred to as the cut-hunter hypothesis. So, So you have to imagine one man southeastern corner of Cameroon around 1908, killing and butchering a chimpanzee and perhaps cutting himself with his machete as he did this and getting blood-to-blood contact, chimpanzee blood into with a cut on his hand, and that is presumably the way that, the, as I say, the pandemic strain of HIV first got into the human population.
0: And then from there, it spread throughout the human population. And from
1: there, it spread slowly, slowly at first. It seems to have simmered for decades, possibly in the villages of southeastern Cameroon, probably working its way down the river system that leads out of southeastern Cameroon to a river called the Sanga, and then down the Sanga to the main stem Congo River, down the Congo River to the big population centers, Brazzaville and the the city that was formerly Leopoldville, capital of the Belgian Congo, and which is now Kinshasa, capital of the Democratic Republic of, of the Congo. And it was from Kinshasa that the virus seems to have finally emerged in the late 1960s and gotten to Haiti in the bodies of Haitian workers who were returning to Haiti after spending time in the Congo, after having had sexual relationships, after having picked up the virus. So they carried the virus back with them to Haiti. And then, as we know from Haiti, it got to the U.S. and to the rest of the world.
0: Do you think where the spread was a little bit more facile days now, where uh, travel is a little bit easier between countries?
1: Well, yes. All of these diseases now that we uh, now that we live in such an interconnected, globalized civilization, people flying around very frequently, very quickly. In some cases, taking diseases with them. Uh, we're transporting products, including live animals, around the world more and more abundantly and more and more quickly. So, so once one of these diseases gets into the human population whether it's a virus or something else, it can spread now far more broadly and far more quickly than ever before. It's the globalization of disease as well as the other forms of globalization.
0: Uh, Given how uh, quickly that can spread, does this pose a lot of challenges for uh, controlling an outbreak should one occur?
1: Well, that's right. And that's why, for instance, the SARS outbreak in 2003, You remember, this was this new virus. Uh, It was very infectious and very lethal. It came out of southern China got into Hong Kong and infected some people uh, who carried it to a hotel in Hong Kong, one man in particular who came to Hong Kong for the wedding of his nephew. He got very sick while he was there in this particular hotel. He was staying on the ninth floor. He perhaps um, sneezed or coughed in an elevator or maybe he vomited in the corridor of the ninth floor of this hotel and then people from other rooms up and down that corridor finished their stay in Hong Kong, got on planes, went home to Toronto, to Beijing, to Singapore, to Hanoi. They had become infected and they carried the SARS virus with them so that suddenly there were outbreaks in Toronto and Singapore and those other cities. Uh, and, and the SARS virus had gone global within a, the space of just a, a very few days. Fortunately, it infected only about 8,000 people and killed only about 900, better than 10% of the people that it infected. But, but thanks to fast diagnostics, quick identification of this new virus and very stringent and, and sensible public health measures, quarantine, isolation of patients, protection of healthcare workers, et cetera, the, uh, the professionals were able to stop the SARS outbreak before it had killed, spread much more broadly and killed many more people. Some people tend to think that, well, SARS, it, it died out. It didn't turn out to be such a bad thing. But in fact, SARS did not die out. SARS was stopped by this sort of high-speed, scientific identification, the high-speed, high-tech diagnostics, and the very speedy and effective public health measures in the, those cities where it had uh, caused these outbreaks.
0: Certainly uh, some diseases which act very quickly and cause death more rapidly might have a shorter window in which to really take root and, and spread through uh, society. That's right. There,
1: there's a whole range of of ways in which these viruses perform once they get into into human bodies. For instance, Ebola. The Ebola virus, uh, the infamous virus from Central Africa, tends to uh, make people very sick very quickly, and if it's gonna kill them, it kills them very quickly. It's a horrible disease, case lethality rate uh, of up around 60 or 70%, but it doesn't ride airplanes very well. So it has remained mostly a disease of African villages to uh, lesser extent of disease of african cities but it hasn't spread elsewhere in the world and then on the other hand there are things like uh, hiv which works very slowly in humans it has a it has a high case fatality rate it, uh, until we got the uh, the modern drug cocktails that are available now at least in in affluent societies, uh, it was killing 100% of the people that it infected, but doing it very slowly, in some cases taking 10 years to destroy a person's immune system and finally kill that person, so it could spread around the world despite being 100% lethal, it could spread around the world very broadly before uh, and, and pass from person to person before people were, were brought down by it. So those are the extremes. Uh, Ebola on one side, on one end of the spectrum, and, and HIV on the other end. And in between that, you've got all of these other zoonotic pathogens that, uh, in some cases, kill high numbers, high percentages of the people that they infect. In some cases, do it very quickly, in some cases, do it slowly. There's a great variety, and it's uh, it's why the uh, the experts realize that they have to study the ecology and evolutionary biology of these viruses, uh, and not simply their uh, their medical implications in humans.
0: Are there any uh, pathogens out there that are particularly warning to healthcare officials?
1: Well, the experts that I've talked to say that the things that we can say about the next human pandemic, the next big one, are that it will most likely be zoonotic. Yes, it'll be something that emerges from a non-human animal, it will most likely be caused by a virus, and in particular, they say it will most likely be caused by an RNA virus as opposed to a DNA virus. That means certain families of viruses, including the influenzas, including uh, the family that Ebola belongs to, including those viruses such as Nipah and Hendra that I had, that I mentioned, including SARS, those viruses are all RNA viruses, and the next big one, so say some of the experts anyway, the next big one will probably also be caused by an RNA virus because RNA viruses, they evolve much more quickly than DNA viruses, they're much more changeable. When they replicate, they, they make a lot of mistakes in replicating their genomes. They, they mutate very quickly, and because they mutate quickly, they're capable of evolving quickly capable of adapting to new kinds of hosts and uh, therefore capable of adapting to humans as as their next host.
0: So take your class that just seems to be the most likely uh, culprit uh, presumably in the future. That's
1: right. The RNA viruses that uh, pass from animals into humans are the ones that uh, the experts, at least the experts I've talked to, and I've talked to quite a number of them, the RNA viruses are the ones that they're watching with particular vigilance, particular concern. For instance, there was a new virus, an RNA virus of the coronavirus family, which is the same family of viruses that holds the the SARS virus. There was a new coronavirus, somewhat similar to SARS, that has emerged recently on the Arabian Peninsula just in the last couple of months. Uh, It has only killed one person, infected two other people, but scientists all over the world are watching it carefully because it being a coronavirus, an RNA virus, somewhat closely related to SARS, they realize that this is the kind of thing that could could go big, uh, could be very,
0: very devastating in the human population. Hmm. Well, certainly a, a bit terrifying. I mean, is there anything one could do to protect oneself in such a situation?
1: Well, there are some very simple, practical things that people can do to protect themselves, their families, their children. Um, get your flu vaccination. Uh, if your child is playing in the forests of, of northeastern U.S., then by all means, pick the ticks off of him or her when he comes in from playing to try and uh, protect him from Lyme disease, simple things like that that are very specific to particular diseases in particular places, but at a deeper level, I would say that the, the most important thing for people to do is to educate themselves a bit about the dynamics of these diseases. Learn a little bit about the science. Understand a little bit what zoonotic diseases are, what causes them to spill over, and why there seems to be this increasing trend of zoonotic spillovers in in the modern age. As I say in the book, don't try to apply your knowledge until you have some. So uh, I encourage people to... um, to read up a little bit, to, to learn a little bit about the subject of zoonotic diseases. This book of mine, um, it's, it's a scary subject. It, it contains some, some gruesome facts and cases, but it's not meant to make people more scared. It's make, meant to make people more smart, to give them the power of knowledge about this subject.
0: Again, the book is called Spillover, Animal Infections and the Next Human Pandemic. And Mr. Quammen, I want to thank you very much for your time.
1: Well, it's been my pleasure talking with you. Thanks very much for your interest.
0: And you were just listening to Mr. David Quammen discussing his new book, Spillover. This is the Grok's Science Show. Coming up in a few minutes, it's the Grokatron 5000, so stay tuned. It's time to play our game, the Grokatron 5000. It is our supercomputer, formerly known as Deep Blue, and today the uh, Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic, infected or healthy. So, for the following five individuals, the Grokatron 5000 likes to know if you think they're infected or healthy and a little reason why. Mr. Kwame, you ready to play the game?
1: I guess I'm ready, Charles. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Okay. (laughs) All right. Person number one, infected or healthy, it's the actor Charlie Sheen. (laughs)
1: <laughs> oh, I'm afraid Charlie is infected with something or other I'm not sure whether it's egotism or fusion or just what it is But um, yeah, I'd say infected <laughs>
0: um, All right, number two, it's the uh, pop star Lady Gaga Oh, I think Lady Gaga is infected with charisma All right, She <laughs> really got that Number three, uh, Richard Dawkins
1: Richard Dawkins is a colleague and, and sort of a friend of mine. And if Richard is infected with anything, uh, it is high intelligence and great zeal to uh, to explain science, in particular evolutionary biology. Richard Richard is infectious as, as well as infected, and, and I think in the very best
0: of ways. Uh, number four, uh, golfer Tiger Woods. Oh. <laughs> This is a tough game, Charles. Tiger is,
1: well, Tiger, I think, is recovering from an infection of the yips, uh, (laughs) if you know that golfer's term. Uh, I think that his game is coming back to him. His putting and and his short game generally is coming back to him. So I would say that that Tiger is in recovery. He's on the mend from a somewhat severe case of the yips.
0: (laughs) All right. Well, that's good to hear. Uh, number five, finally, infected or healthy? It's media mogul Donald Trump.
1: I think he's he's infected with a very, very interesting growth of something resembling hair on the top of his head. <laughs> now, I, I guess I've I've gone five for five in saying these people are infected. But um, you know, I, I I suppose that we're all infected with something or other, and uh, I just hope that in most cases it's not any sort of a nefarious new virus.
0: <laughs> mr kwamen i want to thank you very much for sticking around playing our game and again talking about your fascinating new book spillover animal infections and the next human pandemic thank you so much for your time great to be with you and that's all for this week's edition of the grok science show make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology if you'd like to contact us here you can email us at science at groks.net. for grok science i'm frank ling And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.